Our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin might be brought to nothing. When our old self in Adam was crucified and dead and buried, the body of sin was brought to nothing. What does that mean? That the body of sin was brought to nothing. People really disagree about this. I've worked so hard to figure out what the body of sin is. I've found six different answers. And I have an opinion about which of the six it is. But the reality is I really don't know. I'm embarrassed to tell you I don't know. (laughs) All right, I wish I did. You asked me to come here and talk about this, and I hate to be up here saying I don't know what to say. But I don't know the answer. But I feel okay about it. I feel okay about not knowing. The reason I feel okay about not knowing is one of the people that I looked to for this was uh, R.C. Sproul's commentary on Romans. And when he's talking about this and his commentary, he says something like, I've been studying the book of Romans for 50 years. Can you imagine saying something like that? I've been studying the book of Romans for 50 years, and I don't know what the body of sin is. So I'm checking that box off. All right. If he tried for 50 years and he doesn't know, I'm gonna get, I feel comfortable saying this is not something that's the clearest thing in the whole world. Here's the other reason I feel comfortable not knowing. Because in the text, what is the most important thing is not what the body of sin is, but rather what it means that it's dead, that it's brought to nothing. Here's what it says. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So the body of sin is brought to nothing. What is it? I don't know. But here's what it means that it's brought to nothing, that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the point. So you have a body of sin, and so do I. What is it? We'll find out together one day. But that it's dead means we're not enslaved to sin anymore. So whatever the thing is, effects that we don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to sin. You are dead. That's the first fact. Here's the second fact. You are raised. You are raised. You're dead, first fact. You're raised, second fact. Paul wants to make the point that in the kingdom of Christ, you can't separate death from life. You can't separate it in the life of Jesus because when he died, he sprung to life after three days. You can't separate death from life in Jesus. And when you're in Jesus, you can't separate death from life in your reality either. Death in Jesus leads to life. Who, who talks like that? Nobody knows how to talk like that in our culture. Because in our culture, under Adam, apart from Christ, when you're dead, you're dead. And that's it. But not when you know Jesus. When you know Jesus, when death happens, then life happens. So you are raised. You can't separate death from life. In Jesus, death necessarily leads to life. Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose to life. And that's true in us. It's true for Jesus now in a physical way. And it's true for us in a spiritual way. 
Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we've been united with him, verse 5, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have not yet experienced our physical death and our physical resurrection. Right now, though, we have experienced Jesus' physical death and resurrection by faith spiritually. As we are united by faith, as we trust Jesus, we are joined with him in his physical death and resurrection through our ethical death and resurrection. The physical death and resurrection of Jesus leads to ethical death and resurrection in our lives. That is, we die to sin and we live to righteousness. Paul gives us this information because he wants us to have hope and he wants us to be holy. He doesn't want you to keep sinning. He wants you to quit. And so he tells us information that you were dead, and now you're alive. And if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you have to believe in Jesus' requirement for you to be holy. What does that mean about porn? It means you're free. It means you are free. You might not know you're free. You might not feel free. In the same way that you don't look dead and don't feel dead, you might not look free or feel free, but you are. It means you don't have to look at porn. That's a really big deal. You don't have to look at porn. So this is such a big deal because people say they have to look at porn. You don't understand. This is really hard. I I have to look at porn. No, you don't. Well, no. Okay. You have no idea what this means for me. There is this pull. I, I, I have to look at porn. No, you don't. No, you don't. Well, It's really, really hard. Okay, well, fine. It can be hard. Nobody's saying that this is a cakewalk. It's not like a walk through the park on a spring day. But you don't have to. In Christ, you don't have to look at porn because you're dead and raised. When you don't know Christ, you have to sin. Romans 7 talks about the law of sin. Romans 3 talks about the same thing. You have to sin apart from Christ. But in Christ, you don't have to sin. When you sin as a Christian, you do what you did not have to do. You do what Jesus gave you resources to not do. You don't have to look at sin or at porn. You are free from sin. Now, I don't know who's, who's here. I don't know anybody's stories, but some people struggle with porn because they look at it. 
some people struggle with porn because they love somebody who does and it's killing their marriage or it's killing their family or something like that. And some people struggle with porn because they're in a relationship where they're trying to help somebody who's looking at porn, a counseling situation or a ministry situation or whatever it is. I don't know who's who in here, but these facts are relevant for you wherever you are. You don't have to look at porn as relevant for you if you're in the struggle. You have more power in you than you know. It's not your power. It's power that comes from the grace of Christ. But you have power that Jesus gives to you, and that is greater than your sin, and you don't have to look at porn. What if you're married to somebody who's struggling? You need to hear this. I talk to wives. I talk to husbands who are afraid it's never going to be any different than it is. You've just given over to it. It's a mess. It's never going to be different. And that might be true if the person's unsaved. But if, if we're talking about somebody who knows Christ, it's impossible that it would be true. Sooner or later, Jesus will win the day on that person's struggle. Sooner or later. I'm, I'm not able to tell when, and you aren't either. But Jesus means to vanquish every foe, even if it's our desire for porn. And so we can have hope. When we're in a relationship with somebody and we feel like it's never going to be any different, the message of grace says that's not true. And then if you want to help somebody, we get to give massive amounts of life-changing truth to people who are crying because their lives are destroyed, their marriages are torn to shreds, they've lost their ministry, and they feel like it's never going to be any different. And we can say... Jesus sets you free. There's grace. You're dead. You're raised. You have grace. Nobody can say that to anybody. Nobody can say that to anybody else but us. That's the power and the facts of Romans 6. Next, let's look at the power for purity in the faith of Romans 6. Power for purity in the faith of Romans 6. I've been very careful as I've been talking up to this point. And I made a very clear distinction between the people who can have hope and can have joy and the people who can't. And it's the difference between people who are Christians and who are not Christians. And the reason you have to be careful is because these facts are not true for everyone. That's the, we, we have an agreement in our house that dad will give you the cold, hard facts. If, if, you, if you have a hard question, dad will give it to you straight. And so they come up and they're like, dad, we, have, we wonder about this. And I'm like, okay, listen, I will give you the cold, hard facts. But you might not like it. Okay, all right, dad, just tell. All right, here we go. Here it is. Uh, so here's the cold, hard facts. The cold, hard facts is this isn't for everybody. Not everybody can have this hope because not everybody has this grace. And so, how do you know if these facts are relevant for you? Jesus died and rose to set people free. How do you know if Jesus died and rose to set you free? Well, Romans... Six 
spends 10 verses giving us facts. We just skipped over and looked at a few of them. We didn't even unpack all that much. It's just, but the fact of the matter is, is that you got 10 verses of you're dead and you're raised. 10 verses of that. All facts. The first thing we are told to do in Romans 6. And a lot of people argue the first, the first command in the, in the book of Romans happens in Romans 6, 11. Here it is. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's the first command in Romans 6, and a lot of people think it's the first command in the book of Romans. You are dead. You are raised. Ten verses of that, and then in the 11th verse, the first thing he tells us to do is to believe it. Paul is not content with just laying out the information, but he asks us to buy into it. And the way we buy it is by trusting it. You're dead, you're raised, so consider it to be true. Reckon it true. Believe it. Rest in it. Have faith in it. The facts for purity that give you hope and joy and confidence in the struggle against porn, those facts are true for you when you believe them. And they are not true for you if you don't believe them. So do you believe that Jesus died and rose? And if you believe that and you believe the Bible which is the only place you're learning about that, then you have to believe that you died and rose. So the lie, I have to look at porn, I can't quit, is only true if Jesus is still dead. But if Jesus is alive and you believe it, then you're free. So the, the first command in Romans six eleven is to just believe the truth. Believe the message. Trust the facts. Now, there is a lot of things that we need to say about this, actually. There's power in this response of the facts. It's, it's profound because it asks us to look to the resources that are outside of ourselves. This is not what we usually do. We usually say, I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try really hard. I'm going to quit. Baby, I promise. This was the last time. I'm never going to I'm going to throw the computer in the dumpster. Uh, I'm going to get a flip phone. I swear, I'm never, ever, ever going to do it again. We're going to make this work and it's going to be okay. Mom, I promise. This is the last one. Uh, play, don't, don't take my smartphone away, but I'm telling you, I am not going to do it again. I talked to the youth pastor uh, and this is the end, I promise. It's our instinct to say, let's try hard. But that is not the first thing that Paul tells us to do. He tells us to look to resources beyond ourselves. The reason Paul says the first thing he says, which is to consider it true, to have faith in it, is because faith is the one thing you can do that's not something you can do. Isn't that funny? It's the one thing that you can do 
that's not something you can do. All faith does is trust in the work of another. Lauren, uh, she, was, uh, she was a Christian camp leader when she, was, uh, when she was in college. And they would do these trust falls, okay? Um, and they would start out at the beginning of the week, you know, lean back, and your team's back there, and they catch you. By the end of the week, you're standing on top of a car, <laughs> all right, falling off. And uh, I said, Lord, I would never do that. Um, I get, the, I get the, uh, the lesson that we're trying to learn. You know, hey, you got to trust somebody other than yourself. But those people with their hands clasped together aren't Jesus. So I'm thankful for, uh, for the lesson, but I already get the whole faith thing, and I'm not jumping off a car uh, backward with my eyes closed and a blindfold on. Uh, but the point is you just have to... You just have to entrust yourself to someone else. And that's what Paul wants because that's what Jesus wants because Jesus doesn't want you to get the glory when your life is in shape. He wants the glory. And so he asks you to trust in him. That is the profundity of faith. You have to trust in these facts. But it's also a really practical thing to do, to consider it, to be true. Because what that does is it access the, 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 the language of consider there is interesting. It asks us to engage our minds, which, if you're thinking about looking at porn, is something you're already doing. You are thinking about whatever the images are that you want to see. You're thinking about whatever sexual frustrations you're experiencing. Your wife's not available, or your husband's out of town, or you're a teenager and you're not married, or whatever it is. You're thinking about all the frustrations that make this make sense. And Paul asks us, through the exercise of faith, to do something differently with with our minds. To consider something else. To consider who Jesus is. To consider what he did to pay for our sins. To consider what it means that because he's alive, we are too. And it's that kind of consideration, it's that kind of thoughtfulness that will not lead to sin, but will lead to righteousness. So this is both, consider this to be true, is both profound and practical. When you do what Paul says to do, you are beginning to think about things that will not lead in the direction of sin and porn, and impurity, but will lead in the direction of righteousness. So, Paul says, consider yourselves to be dead and alive in Christ. So what's true? What is true? Who do you believe? Who do you trust? Do you trust that voice in your heart that says, You have to trust that voice? Or do you trust the truth of God's word? That you're dead. You're alive. Because Jesus is dead and alive. So consider it to be true. Trust it. And then there's power for purity in the fight of Romans 6. So you get all this 
statement of fact. You're dead, you're raised, because Jesus is dead and raised. So, verse 11, believe it. Consider it to be true. And now, Paul says, after you've considered the facts, after you've believed them, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. I was, uh, the second church that I pastored, um, I had um, been there for a few weeks our first son, Carson, had been born. He just turned 10. Um, and um, I'd been at the church for a few weeks. And he was born prematurely, and he had some lung and heart trouble. And so we had to meet very early at the hospital one morning for, um, uh, for an echocardiogram for him. And after we got done at the hospital and I was leaving, I was getting into church at like 9.10 or something like that, 10 minutes after 9. And uh, I was always the first one in the church office. Our house was about four minutes away, and I would get there. You know, I'd leave our house at 8.50 and be there at 8.55. And everybody else came in right at 9. And uh, my secretary was a dear, sweet woman. But she had been the secretary for um, three pastors uh, before me at the church. And... All of them had been corrupt and immoral in some way. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, they're actually pretty awful stories. But the, the guy right before me would have her lying for him all the time. Uh, fending off church members with stuff he was doing that he wasn't really doing and this kind of thing. And I was, I was in the process of learning about some of this in these early weeks. And I was, I was walking in from the hospital uh, after being there with Carson. And... Uh, I hear her say on the phone, well, he's in a meeting right now, but I'll have him call you back. Okay. Hang up the phone. And I was like, hey, who's in a meeting? And she said, you are. And I was like, oh, I am. And she's like, well, not really. And I was like, well, what's going on? And she said, you don't know this guy, but I promise you, this is not the church member you want knowing that you weren't in here on time your first two weeks on the job. And I was like, um, well, you don't have to tell him something that's untrue. You could just say, his son was sick, they were at the hospital, make sure his heart's okay. So just, you don't have to, you don't have to say anything like you, just tell him the truth. And she said, it's all right. We're not under law. We're under grace. And I said, come in here for a minute. So we went, we went into my office and we looked at Romans 6. And it's funny because she's quoting this passage that we just read. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. But she quoted it to mean the opposite of what it says. Isn't that amazing? She got it from the pastor who preceded me. Ah, it's covered in the blood. We're not under law, we're under grace. We're not under law, but under grace is not an argument to keep sinning. It's an argument to fight sin. 
And this poor woman, I mean, I don't want you to think it came down on, hard on her. She, was, she felt very badly when she saw this, but she just was, she had a pastor that was an immoral and an unethical man and who trained her to do this. So it's okay, we're not under law, but under grace. Hearing that from your pastor, you know, and you're li- she's lying on the phone about him, she's lying on the phone about me. Um, this is a passage that encourages us to fight. It encourages us to work. There is a weird, a weird theology um, that is out there right now. It's in books and in conferences. And it's, if, in fact, I was at a conference. I was at a Christian conference, and the speaker was preaching on Romans 6, 1 to 14. And he read Romans 6, 1 to 14, and he preached for an hour and 15 minutes that as soon as you tell Christians to do something, you've stopped acting like a Christian and you've started acting like a legalist. He's like, we don't ever tell Christians to do anything other than believe. And it was horrifying because... uh, um, I was walking, there's about 900 people at this conference, and uh, I was walking around talking to some of the people that were there. There was a lot of young folks, uh, 20 te- teens and 20s. And I was walking around, and I, I said, hey, what's, what's been the talk that, um, that's been the most helpful to you? I probably asked 15 or 20 people, and everybody said, that fella. And uh, I said, well, why? And I'm like, it's just so freeing to know that we don't have to do anything except trust Jesus. And the, the problem with that is it's not what the Bible says. The problem is that it's a sermon on Romans 6 that acts like Paul stopped writing at Romans 6.11. But Paul just kept on writing. Uh, and, and he said, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So fight. This is an invitation. Let not sin reign in your body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. There is like six months of counseling and change process just in those two verses. Because what it is, it's an invitation for you and me to consider all of the ways that I am tempted to present my members to sin. And to shut that off. And then to consider all of the ways I might change and direct my service and my energy towards Christ. This, this is a passage that is inviting us to be incredibly practical and incredibly busy doing things. But just not doing things in our own strength. Doing things as people who are convinced that some crucial spiritual realities are true, that Jesus was as dead as four o'clock. But then, on the third day, his eyes popped open because his heart started beating and his lungs drew in breath. (sighs) What in the world? Um, people, people say, hey, if you could be present for any historical event in history, what would it be? And I want to say the resurrection, but I also sort of don't. Because can you imagine 
if you were in the tomb, like, I don't know when it happened, but let's say it's 550. Listen, that would have freaked everybody out, all right? We, we're, we're excited about it now, and we should be, but can you imagine rigor mortis, white flesh, and then a breath of air? Jesus was that dead, and he became that alive. And we are that dead and that alive. And we need to believe it. And then when we believe it, we fight. And there is power available for all of us to do that as we trust in this Christ and as we wage this war. And what I want to look at over the next several sessions is something of what that fight would look like. But we have to be clear, and this is what makes that guy at that conference nervous. People are nervous that we're going to work apart from grace. And I'm nervous about that too. I mean, I don't want anybody just trying hard uh, because that's going to lead to despair and frustration and divorce and more porn and all the rest. But after we've considered that Jesus was dead and raised and so are we, well then... We can fight because of the power of grace that's greater than our sin. Father in heaven, would you help us? Would you help us to believe in our Christ? To believe in what he has accomplished for us. And Father, would you help us to fight? Fight in his name, not in our strength and the resources we have from him. Father, thank you for grace that is greater than our sin. We give you thanks for this in the name of Jesus who purchased it for us. Amen.